first reading is Jonah chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take note of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for, O Lord, you have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish, Three days and three nights. Our second reading is Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40. (coughs) Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Thanks, Beef. Morning, everybody. We'll just um, start with a brief word of prayer. Loving Father, we thank you that we can come again here today as a church family to spend time in your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Okay, jumping back in time just a little bit for a minute. It's the American summer, 1975. Some of you were here then. And an interesting social change has been building and it explodes in the June of that year. So over the last five years, the number of shopping malls in America have grown from 1,500 to 12,500. Many of those now come with a multiplex cinema and air conditioning. And so suddenly being inside on a really hot summer's day is actually a nice escape. And the time is now ripe for something that has never occurred before. Steven Spielberg releases his movie Jaws. Do you remember the one? It's about the, the killer shark. And it's the first ever summer blockbuster. And it now sets up a formula that Hollywood has repeated year on year ever since. And at the time, for those that were there, it was a phenomenon. There were people queued up all around the block to go and see this film. My mum, she was working uh, at a florist shop in Australia at the time and she can still remember seeing the crowds of people and hearing the screams from the cinema that was next door as people reacted to the antagonist of that story. Now I remember seeing this movie, it was, I watched it on TV, but I saw it with my dad, I think I was probably 12 or 13 at the time and I enjoyed it. It was a simple scary movie about a killer shark and it made me like probably countless other people uh, a little bit hesitant when we were swimming at a family holiday spot up in Nelson for the next few years. And if I wasn't a movie buff and I hadn't re-watched that, that movie, I think that's where I would have left that film. And I think that's where most people leave it. They think it's a simple story about a killer shark, probably watched it too many times back in the day, and there's not much magic left in it. So it's interesting to read what top movie directors and producers think about Jaws. They think it's a masterpiece. The famous director, Quentin Tarantino, he says that I think that Jaws is maybe, possibly, the greatest movie ever made. He says there's no better than Jaws and it shows just how badly timed movies were before that one. A New Zealand Herald reporter challenges the view that it's just a really simple B-grade movie about a shark. This is what the reporter says. First things first, Jaws is not about a shark. It might have a shark in it and indeed all over the poster, the soundtrack album, the back of the, the back of the the book, everything is a shark, and it may have scared a generation of cinema goers out of the water for fear of being bitten in half by the teeth of the sea. But the underlying stories of Jaws is much more complex than the simple terror of just being eaten by a very big fish. Now, I think that the book of Jonah can suffer from the Jaws effect. I think it can risk being tainted as the equivalent of a B-grade summer blockbuster. Just a good story about a big fish. We had it read to us 50 times when we were young and we've probably read it to our kids or our grandkids another 150 times from that children's Bible. Probably haven't touched it since and there's not much magic left in it. Well, I've got this book wrong. And so today I thought we could do just a really quick rewatch of Jonah. I thought I'd try to throw the spotlight on just a few of the hidden gems in this book to show that, like Jaws, it really is a masterpiece. So a quick bit of background. Jonah is a Jewish prophet. Not a huge amount is uh, known about him. He doesn't have an amazing backstory. 
But he's first introduced to us, not here today in, in what we read, but in the Old Testament book of Second Kings, during the chronological summary of the kings of Israel. You remember how it goes, good king, then there's a bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, there's lots more bad kings. We get to chapter 14 and we get to Jeroboam II. And he was, you can guess it, he was yet another bad king who did evil in the sight of the Lord. But 2 Kings also tells us that Jeroboam was the one who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea. And how did he do it? In accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath Hefer. And so when we pick up today's reading that, that Beth read to us, we do know a few things. Firstly, Jonah is from gath Hefer, a town only five kilometres from Nazareth. So he is, like our Lord Jesus, a man from Galilee. Secondly, he's been called by God as a prophet. And finally, God has spoken to him previously. The northern boundaries of Israel have been recaptured and restored in accordance with his prophecies. And they're good prophecies, aren't they? I'm sure that uh, you know, they won their land back, probably got a bit of uh, national pride back. So it's probably fair to say that Jonah was known. He had a little bit of street cred and he made a wee name for himself. And so that's where we enter the book of Jonah again today. And once again, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and he headed for Tarshish. So today... I wanted to throw the spotlight on three broad areas. So firstly, a zoom in, a little bit of character analysis. We'll put the spotlight on what is going on with Jonah's strange reactions that we heard this morning. Secondly, zoom out, we'll have a look at the big picture of this book and just how does it fit into God's overarching story. And then finally, we'll just touch on how this ancient big fish story might speak to us today. So, Zooming in first. What's going on with Jonah? We've got this proven prophet and he receives a clear and an urgent call from his God. But suddenly instead of listening to his Lord's commission and heading 500 miles to the northeast to Nineveh, he runs in the complete opposite direction with the intent on heading 2,500 miles to the west. Well, let's dispel the common storybook answer that Jonah was afraid. He was afraid of the commission, it was all too tough an assignment for him, and he was running scared. For sure, Nineveh was a tough town. It was a large metropolis, over 1,200 people, an ancient city, the capital of Assyria in modern-day northern Iraq, and it was a cesspool of wickedness, magnificently violent and well-recorded in their own history. And no doubt it was a fearful place for those that weren't accustomed to those dark types of cities. But when we read through the account of Jonah this morning, and if if you keep reading the rest of the book, nothing in the book gives us an indication that he was a timid or a scared man. In fact, his reactions that we heard this morning through the storm, his courage and his honesty, at least with the sailors, his self-sacrifice, throwing himself off the boat, and his eventual preaching, unaided, by himself in Nineveh, show that he's a pretty robust guy. Now, the better explanation for Jonah fleeing the scene is his pride as a prophet and his love of his country and his people. As we've already seen, Jonah's a well-known prophet. His prophecies to date have benefited his own country. And this, in general, is the pattern of all of the prophets in the Old Testament. 
Almost exclusively, all of the prophets were internally focused. They prophesied to their own people, to their own leaders, exclusively to God's chosen people of Israel. But here this morning, there's this massive departure. God commissions Jonah to leave Israel and to preach to the Gentiles, and not just any Gentiles, but the Assyrians of all people. This wicked nation who had already begun to attack Israel on the fringes, and as some of us know from, from the rest of the history, they are soon to build and they are to become the arm of God's judgment against Israel. So Jonah, as a proud prophet and a patriotic Jew, is being asked not to follow in the pattern of the prophets, but to break from tradition and to go out to the Gentiles and to the growing enemy of Israel and to preach judgment in the hope that God will save these fallen people and wipe the slate clean. It's not a glory job for him, is it? For Jonah, it's an intolerable commission. And listen to what Jonah says at the back end of this book in chapter 4. Jonah prays to God and he says, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and a compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. That's why Jonah ran. Pride and honour in his role, love of his country, love of his people and all of it, surpassing his obedience and his submission to his Lord. It's kind of understandable in a way, isn't it? Yet it's this terrible turning point and you can feel the weight of it because whilst the other sailors are terrified at the storm that the Lord has sent and they're crying out to their gods, Jonah sleeps. He's gone down below He knows that he's a doomed man running from his all-powerful, his all-knowing God and Jonah's just given up. He's turned his back on his God and now he's content to sleep, numb in his own irredeemable hopelessness and awaiting his fate. So that's the zoom in. Now we're going to pan out a bit. The Holy Scriptures and our God's message of hope are a wonder, aren't they? They are simple enough to make the foolish wise and to touch the hearts of even our small children. And yet they're so deep that they can challenge and they can stimulate the greatest human minds all of their life. 1 Peter 12 tells us that even the angels long to look into these things. And one of the great treasures of the Old Testament is typology, where God's master plan of redemption through our Saviour Jesus is revealed and it's demonstrated in part through the events of the people of God. And so through both the character and the events of God's people, elements of Christ's ultimate character and his ultimate redemptive plan are revealed to us. It's kind of like looking through a window into the future. And although the window might be a little bit dirty, a little bit smudged, and the story that we're watching isn't a complete replica, the typology and the similarities are so clear that they can only prove the divine authorship of this book couple of simple examples I'm sure most of us know. If we, if we look at Moses, so you look at Moses and who just like Jesus when you break down the story, he was rejected by his people, he was commissioned by God, he was fully obedient to God, he had the power to work miracles, he delivered Israel from bondage, he was their leader and their shepherd, he was a mediator between them and God. 
unmistakable similarities, aren't there? Joseph, another well-known example. So Joseph, who just like Jesus, was beloved of his father, was rejected by his brethren, was betrayed for silver, was falsely accused, he was condemned with two criminals, he was trustworthy and wise, the interpreter of the future and dreams, he was exalted to the right hand of the king, and all the kingdom bowed down before him. Unmistakable similarities. Both of them amazing people in their own rights who lived incredible lives, but when we evaluate them, they so clearly reflect many of the character traits of our Lord, as well as revealing some of the aspects or the roles that our Lord fulfills, and all of it thousands of years before his coming. The author of the book of Hebrews clearly makes that link between Jesus and Moses. You might remember the term, and he says that Jesus is the one greater than Moses. And so in the same way, in today's reading that we had from Matthew, Jesus himself makes that clear link between him and Jonah. It's the only time in the scriptures where Jesus personally identifies himself with a prophet. And so in today's reading, when responding to the Pharisees who have just in the verses beforehand solidified their formal rejection of Jesus as their Messiah and they've accused him of working by the power of the devil, now they say we want another sign and more miracles. And Jesus says the only sign that they will receive is the sign of Jonah and that something greater than Jonah is here. So let's have a quick look at the two, both Jonah and the one greater than Jonah. Both of them, we heard at the start, were Galilean prophets, and they were both sent with a message of salvation. But Jonah was disobedient to his commission, whereas our Lord was fully obedient. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Jonah was proud, selfish and heartless, even though he was a prophet of God. And yet Jesus was humble and generous and merciful. And Jonah sleeps on the boat during the storm in utter helplessness, conscious of the power of God. Whereas if we remember, Jesus sleeps on the boat in the storm with his disciples because he is the power of God. And as we read this morning... Jonah sacrifices himself and he brings salvation to the sailors on the ship, but his fate is due to his own sin. And our Lord also sacrifices himself to bring us salvation, but in stark contrast to Jonah, he bears no sin of his own, but rather ours. And then we all know the next bits of the story, don't we? It wasn't read this morning, but I'm sure you know. And if you don't, it's two pages. Have a read when you get home. Jonah, swallowed by a large fish, and he figuratively dies in the depths of the ocean, and Ollie, Ollie read us his prayer, whereas Jesus suffered a real death and a real burial. And then in chapter 2, Jonah cries out to God in the depths of his suffering. And if you want to look, Jonah's prayers, they're all taken from specific psalms, which if you read them, they're clear predictions of the sufferings of Christ. And God hears Jonah's distressful prayers. And then at the same time, our Lord cries out to his Father in his sufferings. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that during the days of his life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And then Jonah's spat out of the fish, and he's figuratively raised from his watery grave on the third day through the power of God. 
And likewise, on the third day, Jesus, through the power of God, raises himself from the dead. And then finally, in chapter 3 of the book, as we know, Jonah does make it to Nineveh, and he gives an eight-word message, not to the people of Israel, but to the Ninevites. Eight words. And the entire city believed God. From the greatest of them to the least, all were saved. Now that is a miracle far more impressive than Jonah's experience inside that fish. The miracle of the new birth, the hearing through hearing the word of God. And just like Jonah's preaching to the Gentile world, not until after he had passed through death, does a seismic shift in the ministry of the good news of our Lord begin. And instead of being primarily focused within Israel, Jesus commissions the message of salvation to go out to all nations. Like Moses and like Joseph, Jonah is a clear type of Christ. And whilst he is a massively flawed hero, his story is still a window through which we are permitted to see the death and the resurrection and the saving grace of Christ. The one greater than Jonah who succeeds in all of the areas where Jonah fails. The one greater than Jonah whose character shines forth in absolute perfection, whereas as we've seen, Jonah's is tarnished. The one greater than Jonah whose miraculous resurrection and the message of hope that he sends out to the whole world surpasses and it magnifies all of the wonder of the big fish story. So it's worth a reread, isn't it? It is more than just a perceived B-grade children's story. To paraphrase that New Zealand Herald writer, the underlying story of Jonah is more complex than the simple terror of being eaten by a very big fish. So coming into land, I thought we'd just focus on three brief takeaways that I was moved by uh, as I spent some time in this book. So just three things. So firstly, reassurance. At an individual personal level, how reassuring is it to see that despite our failures, and in some cases our total rejection of God to the point where we walk away from him completely, if in our hopeless despair, like Jonah, we call upon his name and we seek his face, he will come and save. In chapter 2, Jonah cries out, he says, But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. And when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. I don't know about you, but I often uh, feel like I can really easily identify with Peter. Remember, he publicly disowned Jesus three times before the cock crows. He denies his relationship with Jesus because of his own fears and his own weakness. How many of us feel like we fail in that space all the time? That feels to me like a very regular occurrence. And so I love that passage because it's so easy to relate to. Uh, it gives me some, some, uh, some confidence, something I can, I can connect with. But Jonah's reaction to God's call that we've heard about today, it feels next level, you know, comparatively speaking, compared to Peter, doesn't it? It's not just a small denial or a failure to stand up and be counted. It's a whole-scale rejection and running away. And so like Jonah, even if we've turned our backs and we have walked as far away from God as we possibly can, 2,500 miles to Tarshish, his mercy and his grace are abounding. And to the point where at the conclusion of his prayers and just before he's spat out of that great fish, Jonah can confidently and he can joyfully cry out, salvation comes from the Lord. 
Jonah speaks to us of reassurance. Secondly, let's check our hearts. At a personal level, or maybe even a group or a church level, are our thoughts of the glory of God limited to our own sense of view? I'll say it again. Are the thoughts of the glory of God limited to our own sense of view? Like Jonah, do we as a people or as a group, do we run the risk of limiting our love and our sympathies to select groups of people? Do we look at others like Jonah did with the Ninevites, with arrogance or with disdain or with smugness? Do we view ourselves as more pious or more correct or more discerning or are we more in tune with society or whatever those things may be? We live in a divisive and a divided world here in the West. Identity politics and the fragmentation of society down into social groups is rife at the moment. And then on top of this, we go and amplify that polarisation through social media and it's, it's nearly impossible to escape the negativity of that environment. I think we're fools to think that we can be totally immune to the impacts of dwelling where we do. And I'd suggest that never in my lifetime are we more at risk of isolating ourselves or becoming inappropriately proud of our own identity and consequently becoming indifferent or even hardened to others, the very trap that Jonah fell into. But nowhere in the Old Testament do we read so clearly of God reaching out and embracing the whole human race, regardless of their condition. If nothing else, this book highlights the enormous gulf that separates the judgment and the love of Jonah and the judge and the lovement of the Almighty. The Lord reminds us in Isaiah, he says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Certainly the book of Jonah calls me to self-reflection, to check my own preconceptions and to reflect on whether my little personal dogmatic views are actually enormously limiting the glory of God. Jonah calls us to check our own hearts. And finally, thankfulness. We are all the inheritors or the beneficiaries of the sign of Jonah. The Pharisees we heard this morning, they wanted another impressive local miracle. Show us another healing or turn some more water to wine. But as so Jonah so aptly illustrated to us 800 years beforehand, the only sign that Jesus would show them, the sign of Jonah, was the power of his resurrection and the preaching of his saving grace throughout the world. Surviving three days in the belly of a big fish is impressive, but make no doubt about it. The conversion of 120,000 Ninevites through an eight-word message is actually the real miracle in the book of Jonah. And we here are now the inheritors of the final chapter of that original story in Nineveh. And we should be ever thankful for a God who, as Titus tells us, will have all men saved and come to a knowledge of him. The one greater than Jonah has worked his miracle of salvation throughout the world and even to us here today in Shirley. It's a masterpiece, isn't it? Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for the great history of Jonah and that through him we can see more clearly the perfection of your son 
and that we can rejoice in the salvation that he has brought to us and to all who hear his call. Amen.